Good morning, Plum Creek. I want to welcome all of you here today, especially if you happen to be new to our church. I am glad that you're here this morning for several reasons. One reason is that today is a big day in the life of our church. Last Wednesday at our annual vision night, we presented a plan for a new building. This building would provide a home for our student ministry, our sharing center, and several other ministries. And because of God's blessing and because of the sale of some land, we are in a position to move forward on this project without adding any debt and without asking the congregation for money. However, our bylaws state that any major building program requires approval from at least two-thirds of our active members. So this morning, we're asking every member of Plum Creek to cast your ballot, as long as you're 16 or older. Now, if you are a member and you know where you stand, you can go out to the information center after service and someone will be there to help you. If you didn't make it to vision night and you feel like you need more information, you can go to our website, plumcreek.org, and you can listen to the audio of that presentation. Just go to the homepage and click on the word listen at the top of the screen. I will say, though, that we need your help on this. Like I said, our bylaws require approval from two-thirds of our active members, and that means a non-vote is a no-vote. So we really appreciate your participation. Now, if you're not sure whether you're a member or not, or you know you're not a member and you'd like to be, you can stop by the Connection Cafe in the back of the room after service, and we'd be glad to help you out. We are excited to see what God is going to do in this next chapter at Plum Creek He has been faithful to lead us in the past, and we're trusting him to lead us into the future. But right now, we need to jump back into our journey through the life and the ministry of Jesus. This journey is called the gospel, and currently we're reading through several stories where Jesus proves that he is no ordinary man. In fact, Jesus is like no one else who ever lived. Now, if you've been here the last couple of months, you know that in this gospel series, we're drawing from all four books that tell the story of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And it's great to hear from all four of these authors because each one brings a different perspective and a different personality. And up to, up to this point, we've read passages in Matthew, Luke, and John. But today, for the first time, we're going to camp out in the book of Mark. And Mark tells the story of Jesus in a unique way. The other gospel writers are often more detailed, more poetic, or even philosophical, but Mark isn't really like that. He's more of a rapid-fire kind of guy. His stories are quick and to the point. When you start reading Mark, it's a little surprising. He skips right over the birth of Jesus, and he takes us on this roller coaster ride. In Mark chapter 1, he's like, okay, guys, I'm going to tell you about Jesus. First, John the Baptist shows up. Then Jesus is baptized. Then he calls the disciples and he starts preaching and teaching and working miracles. He heals Peter's mother-in-law. He casts out a demon. He cures this man of leprosy. And that's just chapter one. Mark doesn't mess around. But this morning, we're going to look at chapter two. In this chapter, there's a story that many of us have probably heard a hundred times. It's the story of a man who is paralyzed. But four of his friends bring him to Jesus so that he can be healed. This is one of those great Sunday school stories. 
Those friends dig a hole in the roof of this house and they lower the paralyzed man down to see Jesus. It's one of those images that just sticks with you. But it's more than a good story. There is a powerful message here for each one of us, no matter who you are or what your situation is. So before we dive into this chapter today, I want to pray. I want to ask that God would speak to us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for who you are. You are real, you are powerful, you are holy, and you are just. And you are also patient and kind and compassionate. And you do want to speak to us today. So Lord, I pray that our hearts will be open to you. I'll pray that, I pray that we will be changed because we were here today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So let's dive into this story. Mark chapter 2. You can follow along with me in your Bible or up on the screen. Mark 2 verse 1 says this. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. So at the beginning of this story, Jesus is already a celebrity. He can't really go anywhere without a crowd showing up. And you know why, don't you? It goes back to what Mark told us in chapter 1. People have seen Jesus heal diseases and cast out demons and solve problems that no one else can solve. So, of course, the crowds flock to Jesus because everybody has problems, right? If a legitimate miracle worker comes to town, you want to show up and see if he can help you, too. So, this is the situation. Jesus is in this little town called Capernaum. And more specifically, he's inside a house in this little town. A lot of scholars believe this is the home of Peter, one of the 12 disciples. And we don't know that for sure, but it does seem likely. What we do know is that this house is packed. It's standing room only. The doors and the windows are blocked. And if you're not already inside, you're not going to see Jesus. But in the next verse, we meet a few guys who won't take no for an answer. Verse 3, some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. And there's that dramatic moment. But before we get to that, let's back up for a second. I want to think about this man who was paralyzed. I want to imagine what his life may have been like before this encounter with Jesus. At that time and in that culture, being paralyzed could actually be like a death sentence. There were no wheelchairs back then, no government assistance. He wouldn't be able to get a regular job, and if you can't work, you can't eat. His only hope was to find a few loyal friends or family members who would take care of every need that he had on a daily basis. Now, if this man was like many of the paralytics of his day, those friends or family members would carry him into town, set him on the ground beside a busy gate, and then he would beg for handouts. This would have been a very hard life. He would have to lie there every day being gawked at and hoping to earn just a few pennies. 
And on top of everything else, many people would have assumed that this man or his family had sinned in some way. It was a common belief that a condition like paralysis was direct punishment from God. So this man's life could have felt very hopeless. But he did have one thing going for him. He had this crew of very good friends. Now these friends had heard about Jesus and his power to heal all kinds of people. So they take the man and they put him on a mat, which is kind of like a stretcher. And then they take off for the house where Jesus is preaching. And along the way, I'm sure all of them were in a good mood. They were optimistic. But then when they arrive, things change. They're like, oh, you got to be kidding. This crowd is ridiculous. There's no way inside. But actually, there was a way inside, wasn't there? Pretty quickly, one of these friends has an idea. Now, I don't know about you, but I think these friends had a little redneck in their blood. If these guys were alive today, I don't think any of them would drive a Prius. I think they'd be driving around in a big diesel truck, the kind that pulls up next to you going, chug, 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 chug. So there's no way these friends were going to just turn around and go back home. One of them, I'm guessing his name was Leroy or something like that, he turns to his buddies and he says, I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to get up on that roof and tear a hole in it. (laughs) You may think I'm exaggerating a little bit here, but listen, some of us have heard this story so many times that we get to this part and we're like, well, yeah, they dig a hole in the roof. Yeah, no big deal. But try to hear this story like you're hearing it for the first time. What these friends do is crazy. I heard one preacher describe it this way. Imagine that you're going out to eat on a Friday night. And you get to the restaurant and the line is out the door. The wait is at least an hour. So what's your next move? I'll tell you what you won't do. (laughs) You won't climb up on the roof and start ripping a hole in it. So let's not fool ourselves into thinking this is normal behavior. These friends are doing something reckless and risky. They're coming to Jesus for help, but their behavior could have easily made Jesus angry. There were several things for him to get upset about, right? First, they're damaging someone's private home. Who's going to pay for that? Second, they are interrupting Jesus while he's in the middle of preaching. It's a huge distraction. Preachers don't like distractions. And third, who do these guys think they are? They're basically cutting in line, trying to get in front of others who also need something from Jesus. That's pretty audacious, isn't it? So how does Jesus respond? Is he upset? Well, it's kind of an amazing thing. Jesus is inside the house preaching and all of a sudden he pauses because bits of grass and dirt and tiles start to fall around him. And then rays of light appear through the ceiling and this man emerges. He's being lowered slowly down to the ground. I wish I could have seen the look on this man's face. I can picture him looking out at that crowd and then looking back at Jesus and saying, I am so sorry. This was not my idea. I've got these redneck friends. (laughs) But in the end, nobody had to worry about Jesus being angry. Let's read the next verse. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. 
Now, everybody in the room would have been surprised and thrown off by that response. Think about it from the perspective of the four friends. They might be grateful that Jesus isn't angry, but I'm sure they're disappointed. Sort of like, uh, Jesus, forgiveness is great and all, but that's not why we came. Our friends still can't walk. And you know, I, I can relate to those feelings. You probably can too. Because whenever you have some big issue that's causing pain in your life, that's what you want God to deal with. You want him to solve that one big problem. But Jesus is not like us. Jesus always has the big picture in mind. So in this case, he doesn't do what the friends expect or want him to do. Instead, Jesus gives this man what he really needs. This paralyzed man needed forgiveness far more than he needed the ability to walk. And you know, this has a direct application to our lives So often we come to God and we say, Lord, I really need you to do this for me. And we ask him to heal a sickness or fix a relationship or straighten out our finances, get our career back on track, whatever. But the truth is, even though all those things are good, none of those things are what we need most. And it makes sense when you follow the example of Jesus and look at the big picture. Think about it. What if God does heal you? Well, you won't stay healthy forever. You'll get sick again. And what if he does give you this great career or financial stability? Those things don't last either. When you look at the big picture, nothing in life is more important than a relationship with God. And when Jesus forgives the sins of this man, that's the gift that he's giving, a relationship with God. Our sin is a barrier that keeps us from God, but when we're forgiven, that wall is broken down. You're free to have a relationship with the one who made you and sustains you, the author of life, the giver of all good things. So when we read Mark 2, verse 5, here's what we learn. Jesus doesn't always give us what we want because he's more concerned about giving us what we truly need, which is a restored relationship with God. It's like what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? And that is so true. When God is on your side, when you have that relationship, you can rest. You can be at peace, truly at peace. Because in the long run, everything will be okay. Literally everything. But let's get back to that house in Capernaum. There was another group of people in the room. This group is also surprised by what Jesus said to this man. Actually, it would be more accurate to say they were shocked and offended. Look at verse 6. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Here we go. The religious leaders are in the house But they didn't show up because they wanted to learn from Jesus. They showed up because they had some concerns. This miracle worker had developed a large and devoted following. The religious leaders already thought of Jesus as a threat. But when he starts telling people their sins are forgiven, they just flip out. 
They don't say it out loud, but the group is unanimous in thinking that Jesus is guilty of blasphemy. The way they see it, he is elevating himself to the same level as God. But you know what? In a way, these teachers of the law are right on target. Their logic is good. Their theology is good because it's true. No one can forgive sins but God alone. But this is where the religious leaders are dead wrong. Jesus is no ordinary man. He's no mere prophet or miracle worker. Jesus is the man who is God. And because of that, he can do some things that no one else can do. For example, Jesus can read people's minds. That's what we see in the next verse. Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? That's a little scary, isn't it? Uh, Make a note of that. If you're in the same room with Jesus, be careful what you're thinking because he knows. And by the way, Jesus still has that ability. Right now in this room, he knows what's in our minds and in our hearts. That's good to remember. But what is Jesus up to here? What is he talking about? Well, it's about proof, isn't it? Jesus told this man that his sins were forgiven, but there was no visible change. So how do you know that it really happened? Well, if Jesus could somehow give this man the ability to walk, that would be visible. That would prove that Jesus has the kind of power and authority you would only expect to find in God. So Jesus goes on in verse 10 and he says, But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. There you go. On that day, Jesus proved without a doubt what his identity was, who he was. The man in this story walked away both healed and forgiven. His life was changed, not just temporarily, but for eternity. And look at that statement from the crowd. They said, we have never seen anything like this. And do you know what they're talking about there? They're not talking about the healing, because they've seen that. Back in chapter 1, Mark says that Jesus had already healed many people. What the crowd had not seen was this authority, this power to forgive sins. And the truth is slowly dawning on them that Jesus not only has the ability to give them what they want, he also has the authority to give them what they need, which is forgiveness, a restored relationship with God. So I've really enjoyed spending time in this story this week, but we need to bring this back around to us. What is it that God wants us to hear? Well, when you read the Bible, there is a practice that can sometimes be helpful. You look at a passage and you answer this question. Where do you find yourself in the story? Which character or characters can you relate to? Well, let's go down the list. First, 
Some of us here may be like that paralyzed man before he met Jesus because you're desperately looking for someone to heal your brokenness. Maybe you're not paralyzed physically, but you are paralyzed spiritually. You feel like you can't move forward because you're full of fear or grief or guilt or regret. Your life just feels broken, and with every day that passes, you're losing hope. If that's you, can I just tell you, Jesus really is who you're looking for. He's not just a character in a story. He is here. He's alive, and he can give you what you need. I don't know how you found your way to church today, but if you can relate to this paralyzed man in the story, please know that Jesus is speaking to you. His arms are wide open. He's calling you to run to him, to find forgiveness and freedom. I know that some of us need to hear that message today, but maybe not all of us. So let's think of another group of characters. What about those religious leaders? You could describe that group with these four words, negative, skeptical, proud, and critical. Now, None of us want to think we have anything in common with these religious leaders, but guess what? If we do have some of these characteristics, it's highly likely that we're not going to see it because of our pride. So let's take an honest look at ourselves. If we asked people who know you, what would they say? Would anyone say that you have a negative or a critical spirit? Now, don't misunderstand me. Are there times when it's necessary to criticize? Absolutely. For example, when somebody claims to speak for God, but they're actually deceiving people and leading them astray, some criticism is definitely warranted. But we also need to be careful. Sometimes we get so caught up in our naysaying that we miss out what God is doing around us. We miss out on the opportunities that he's put right in front of us. That's what happened with the religious leaders. God was working right in front of them, and they didn't see it. So it may be that some of us need to admit that we've fallen into this habit of being overly negative, and we need to humble ourselves and ask God to help us let go of that tendency. But then there's another group of characters in this story, a group that would be easy to overlook. It's the crowd. I don't know how much you thought of this group. I didn't really notice them until someone pointed it out. If, if this story was a movie, these people would only be the extras. But we know enough about them to come up with a description. If you are like the people in the crowd, you are self-interested and self-focused with your back to the world. Think about it. When those four friends showed up at the house carrying this paralyzed man, did anyone turn around and notice? Did anyone step out of the way and create a path for the man to get to Jesus? No, not one Unfortunately, it's easy for people in the church to behave in a similar way. A Christian author named Mark Buchanan had a good comment about this. He said, we are being the crowd when, we, when the experience of those inside the house 
is prioritized over the needs of those outside the house. So let's ask ourselves again, have we been guilty of that, especially when it comes to church? Have we become very focused on our own experience and what we're getting out of church without even noticing all the people who are still on the outside needing to come in? You know, that's the natural tendency that we all have. Every person, every church has this bent toward an inward focus. But that's not what Jesus is like. Jesus will teach us to care about people the way he does, which means we develop an outward focus. There's one last group of characters to consider. It's the friends of this paralyzed man. Were they a little crazy? Sure. Were they a little reckless? I'd say so. But here's what really stands out to me about these guys. They were bold, they were compassionate, and they were willing to wreck the roof to bring someone to Jesus. And you know, I have to say, I am humbled by these friends. When I look at my life, have I done anything like that? Have I gone to the lengths they went through to bring someone to Jesus? I'm not sure I have. And what about you? Have you ever done anything like that? Maybe some of you have but I'm guessing that most of us have a lot of growing to do in this area. So let me ask this. What is it that would help us become more like these friends? Well, I think we read it a few minutes ago. Mark 2, verse 5. That verse says, When Jesus saw their faith. That's when he said to the paralyzed man, Your sins are forgiven. So it's faith. These friends had truly put their faith in Jesus. They were totally convinced that he was the one who could really help. That's why they were willing to wreck the roof. They were going to do whatever it took to remove any and every obstacle that kept their friend from Jesus. So, do you want to be more like those four friends? I know I do. I hope you do too. But to grow in that direction, we need to be very clear about what people really need All of us know people who are far from God. And right now, those people may be very focused on certain things that they want. They're thinking, ah, if I could just have a better job or a better spouse or or better health or better whatever. But at the end of the day, what they really need is Jesus. So the question is, do we believe that? Do we believe it as much as these friends in this story? If so... We're not going to sit back. We're going to wreck the roof to bring people to Jesus. Now, if you've been around Plum Creek for any amount of time, you know we talk about this a lot. Our mission is leading people to a life-changing relationship with Jesus. But this can't just be talk. This mission is not really our mission unless we're living it out. You know, sometimes in the church, people have this idea that Only a small group of people have the responsibility to lead others to Jesus. You know, uh, that's the job of ministers, elders, and a handful of leaders. But listen, that's a misconception. As the leaders of the church, our job is not to lead your friends and family to Jesus. Our job is to make sure all of us are equipped to lead people to Jesus. We want to make sure that you're ready to share the story of how Jesus changed your life. We want you to have an answer when somebody says, 
hey, I want to give my life to Jesus. How do I do that? And we want you to be the one standing in the water next to your friend or your family member as that person is baptized into Christ. Now, as I say those things, I realize that some of us may be thinking, hold on, that sounds pretty intimidating. I'm not sure I can do all that. And that's okay. Nobody gets to that place immediately, but we can all take a step in that direction. And this morning, the challenge is for everyone at Plum Creek to do just one thing. The challenge is to take one simple step, to invite your one to church. Now, over the years, we've talked a lot about this concept of your one. But in case this is new to you, your one is just a person you know who may need a relationship with Jesus. God calls every disciple of Jesus to make other disciples. And inviting someone to church is a great entry point to fulfill that calling. Now, this is a simple step, but it can still be pretty intimidating. We know that. So that's why we have a team here at church that's been working to help all of us reach out to people who need Jesus. This team created something pretty cool. It's called the Invite Your One Toolkit. As a matter of fact, we're going to give you this toolkit right now. The servers can go ahead and start passing these out while I explain it. So this is your lucky day. Come to church and get a free gift. So when you get one of these bags, I want you to notice this full page that's folded in half. This page is basically a game plan for how to reach out to your one. It it walks us through several steps. The first step says, identify your one. And I want to be clear about something. You can absolutely have more than one one. You can have two or three or more. The point is, get specific. Name names. Who has God put in your path? Who has God put on your heart? Who is it that you want to see in heaven with you? That's your one. Now, there's also a little business card in your bag. It has a short version of the steps that you see on the big page, but there's also a blank where you can write the name or the initials of your one or ones. And this business card is something to keep in your wallet or in your purse. It's a reminder and a reference to keep that mission in front of you. But then, going back to the big page, once you've identified your one, the next step is to pray for that person. And we have several guidelines that we'll give you about that, but the important thing is to pray on a consistent basis. We've put something else in your bag to help you remember to pray. It's this carabiner keychain in the shape of a one. Now, you can take this and hang it wherever you want, but put it in a prominent place so you'll have that visual reminder to pray. Now, there's only one carabiner in your bag, but it comes in three colors. And we have baskets at both exits with hundreds of these things. So if you want to switch out and get a different color, feel free to do that. But the main reason we have different colors is for anyone who has more than one, one. Each color can represent a different person. So feel free to take those. And I'm not going to walk through every step on this page. I encourage you to read that on your own. But I want to make sure that you're ready for that big step of inviting your one. 
We're handing out this toolkit today because we have an important opportunity coming very soon. Every year, we know that lots of people visit Plum Creek around Christmas time. So this year, we've been working hard and we've been praying that God would use this opportunity to lead people to Jesus. On December 8th, we're beginning a series called Home. We want to help people understand that finding your true home is really about finding Jesus. In your toolkit, you'll have a couple of invitations for this Christmas series. We really want to focus on the first week of this series. That's December 8th. That's when we want our ones to be here. Invite people to be here on December 8th. This is going to be a very special day. The kids will be singing in the service, and we're going to do our best to present the gospel in the most compelling way possible. This home series is designed to build up to Christmas Sunday and then Christmas Eve and then beyond. And we want to see people get connected, not just to Plum Creek, but to Jesus himself. And I want you to know my heart behind this. I have a heart for people who had some bad experience with church. And now that bad experience is keeping them from Jesus. That's an obstacle that we need to remove. I have a heart for people who think they've messed up so bad that God doesn't want anything to do with them. That's an obstacle that we need to remove. I have a heart for that young person who's struggling with doubts about God, for the older person who feels left out and forgotten, for the woman who's been used and abused and has a hard time trusting anyone anymore. I have a heart for my neighbors. I'm thinking of these two guys on my street. They're my ones. And I've invited both of them to church in the past, but they haven't been here yet. Best I can tell, they just don't feel the need to come to church. They don't feel the need to get serious about their relationship with God. I think a lot of guys are like that. They tell their wives, they tell their girlfriends, you go on ahead, church isn't really my thing. But I have a heart for those guys. I have a heart for everybody on the outside. And I want to be a part of a church that sees those people and cares about those people and wrecks the roof in order to bring them to Jesus. So are you with me? Are you ready? Let's do this together. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this story. I thank you for the faith of these friends, how confident they were that Jesus was the one who could help. Lord, I pray that we will follow that example, that we'll just keep it in the front of our minds that whatever somebody's going through, what they really need is to know Jesus. They need a relationship with you. And I thank you for the great lengths that Jesus went to to make that relationship possible. I thank you for that love and that sacrifice. And Lord, would you please fill us with your love so that we see the world the way you do. That we see people who are lost and dying without you. Help us, Lord, to care. To care enough to do something. To be open to being used by you to lead people to Jesus. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.